Hello, everybody. This is your girl, Donna, a.k.a. The Urban Mommy, and I am back with another podcast. Today, we have a... It's going to be a heartwarming story. And I am sitting here with Dave Elvin. Welcome. Hi, Donna. Thanks for having me. Perfect. Thanks for joining. Can you introduce yourself? Can you let us know who Dave is, please? Uh, Sure. Uh, Dave's... um... He's grandpa and a dad and um, uh, an entrepreneur and a business owner and uh, a coach and a trainer. And <laughs> I guess there's a lot of different uh, names. I, I guess I'm, 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 a, I'm a sobriety coach and, you know, help people with alcohol and drugs and, and, and that type of thing. Uh, uh, Dave lives in the Appalachian Mountains in the northwestern part of the state of North Carolina. I'm very close to the Virginia and Tennessee borders. I live up here. I live up here in a beautiful cabin, and um, I chose to live up here. I, I purposely moved up here into the mountains simply because it was uh, where I wanted to live. It's very—it's a magical place. It's very majestic. Uh, we have very clean air, and I have mountain spring water coming into my into my cabin. So it's um, it's really good. It's it's a great place to live, and uh, and again, we I chose that I wanted to live up here. Okay, and where were you? originally from originally i was uh, born and raised in southern california i was born in hollywood queen of angels hospital to a single mom and um, um when i was uh two months before i was born donna what happened was is my biological father we don't know exactly what happened but he hurt himself he hit his head and they put a plate in his head to save his life and um Two months before I was born, he was talking to my mom all the time and said, you know, he was in a lot of pain, didn't know how long he could take it. And sure enough, two months before I was born, he told mom he was going to the grocery store and we never saw or heard from him again. So when I was born, single mom, right? She already had two boys from another from another man. And then she lived in a one-bedroom apartment. We all lived in a one-bedroom apartment with another cousin and her mother, my grandmother. So there were six of us living in a one-bedroom apartment in Hollywood, uh, right across the street from Hollywood High School. And then um, when I was five years old, mom just couldn't feed all of us. I mean, it was, you know, she was working as a server at the Roosevelt Hotel in Hollywood, really well-known hotel. And mom was a hard worker. I mean, super hard worker. That whole generation was probably one of the hardest working generation of all time, right? Because, I mean, when all the, you know, what a lot of people don't understand about a baby boomer is our parents saved the world, literally, right? My dad that raised me was in Europe fighting the Nazis. My best friend's dad was in in the Navy and he was, you know, fighting the Japanese in Pearl Harbor. And so when all the men were at war during that time frame, guess what all the women were doing? The women did everything. I mean, literally, if there was ever a time in, in, in our planet's history where the women proved how powerful they are, it was then. Because again, women did everything. They built Jeeps, they built trucks, they built ammunition. That My mom was known as Rosie the Riveter, right? And, and, and who that was, she worked for McDonnell Douglas. She mm-hmm. built airplanes. Wow. So they understood hard work, they understood pressure. They came out of the depression. Right. My 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 parents, you know, my mom was a, the one that raised me um, um, was the oldest. The mother that gave birth to me was the youngest, but they didn't throw anything away. Right. You, you throw something away there. You, you didn't. You had to fix it. If you wanted it, you had to fix it. Right. And you had to sew your own clothes and garden your own food. And yeah, it was a, it was a different time uh, back then. So I've I've always been very, very. Um, I don't know, just a lot of pride and, and honor when it comes to uh, my parents and that whole generation. So, um, again, when I was five, she just knew she couldn't she couldn't take care of me anymore. So she did a very, very loving thing. And she uh, she put me up for adoption. And he, she asked her sister, her older sister, to adopt me. And they did. And so, so, so Pat, now my mom, uh, was married to career military officer highly decorated world war ii career military so i we moved from hollywood i moved from hollywood to uh, long beach california and i and i grew up there and it was spectacular uh it was a it was a really wonderful thing that happened to me um 
unfortunately, when I was 11, the first day of summer, 1964, um, literally the very first day of summer. And you know what that's like, right? You're all excited. You're going to have a good time. And, and, you know, you got all these plans. Well, mom goes, David, come in the kitchen. We need to tell you something. But what I thought she was going to tell me was we used to go camping all the time. We'd go to Yosemite. We'd go to um, uh, Lake Arrowhead, Big Bear, Lake Havasu. I mean, we went all over Southern California. Anyway, she sits down and she's got tears in her eyes and she puts her hand on my hand. And she said, David, what we need to tell you is we're not your parents at 11 years old. Well, what does that mean? You know, that's like walking outside and seeing the sky's blue and you go, well, the sky's not blue. Well, it looks pretty blue to me, (laughs) right? Right. My parents look pretty parenting to me. So um, it's when my life took a, you know, a, a hard right turn. And then shortly after that, Donna, what happened was, is that um, they had sworn off drinking when they adopted me at five and they both started drinking again shortly after they told me. Now, I don't know why they chose to tell me that at 11. You know, I get asked that once in a while why they started drinking. I don't know if it was the pressure of them telling me that. I know my dad was under a lot of pressure because there was a lot going on in the in the mid 60s. Uh, the the in, in the in the. November of 63, right before summer of 64, Kennedy had, uh, John F. Kennedy, President Kennedy had been assassinated. There was all that going on with the Bay of Pigs. All those missiles were put in uh, Cuba um, by the Russians. So there was a lot going on. My dad was in and out of the Pentagon, a lot of pressure. So, but I don't know. I just know that they both started drinking. And when they started drinking, things got real ugly real fast. Bob was very violent. He was not a nice human when he was drinking. Um, and they went to the store one day and, you know, back in those days, you could leave your kids home. They, they did it all right. the time. Right. <laughs> well, you had to, right. You just called the neighbor across the street and said, Hey, Joanne, Bob and I are going, you know, to the grocery store. David's home. If he needs anything, can he come knock on the door? You know? And, and, you know, they're like, Oh yeah, of course. You know, tell him to come over now. We'll fix him a fried bologna sandwich. Right. <laughs> so, right. Uh, right. Literally. Right. It was good. I love fried bologna sandwiches. And so, um, when they went to the store, I knew where the booze was, and I wanted to know what the heck this stuff was. I didn't know what alcohol was. I, I just know that here's these two beautiful people, and when they drank it, they you know, became unbeautiful people, right? And so I was curious, and I, they were hiding it in plain sight, right? So I just went over there, and I opened a cabinet, and I brought it out, and it was a, it was a half gallon of, of, of brandy. And I took a coffee cup, and I filled it halfway up, and boom, I drank it at 11 years old. Well, I, I didn't have a chance. I, I truly believe I was an alcoholic right on the spot because it was like pouring rocket fuel on top in, into my body. And I started acting out, thinking alcoholically right from the very beginning. And I, as I said, Don, I, I really never had a chance. And by the time, you know, and it just escalated, right? By the time I was in my junior year, within a month of my junior year, they called me into the principal's office and said, Mr. Albin, we think it would be best if you leave our high school. Oh, okay. Wow. Um, well, I'll, I guess I'll do that. <laughs> and you know what, John? I didn't care. Uh, not at all. It didn't bother me at all because I didn't think that anything that I was learning at that moment was going to help me to survive or make money or any of those kinds of things. I already had an entrepreneurial spirit, big time. Um, my mom, uh, we had a pretty nice backyard and she had a big L-shaped uh, uh, planter. And she grew some of the most beautiful flowers you've ever seen in your life. And there were thousands of them. So mom would go out there and she'd pick the flowers and she'd cut them. And she would cut them at an angle. Not at the bottom. She would cut them at an angle. And come to find out, the reason she did that is it opened more surface space for the flower to get water up into it, right? So she knew what she was doing. And then she had a way of arranging them in colors. They were beautiful. And she'd bind them up for me and she'd put it in a bucket. And then here's the key. She put seven up in that bucket of water with those flowers. And, and, and what happened was, is those flowers would last for two weeks. They would outlast any florist in town. And so I took them out on the street corner and started selling them when I was a kid. So there I was, you know, my own little flower business, <laughs> selling flowers on the street corner. Um, I also, I had a paper out about the same time, right? And, and when you, when you get when you become a paper boy, um, you have, that's your own business. I mean, you're an entrepreneur because you had to do everything. 
right? Seven days a week. Uh, you had to go pick up your papers Monday through Friday in the afternoon and deliver them. And then on Saturday and Sunday, you had to go pick them up at like 530 in the morning because, you know, those people wanted their paper at 7 a.m., right? So you had to go there and pick them up and fold them, put a rubber band around them, put them in your saddlebags, put them on your bike and then drive through the neighborhood and and throw them, you know, up on people's porches. How you old were you when you did that? I was that. 11, 11, 12. Yeah, 11, That's 12. Yeah. But it was great. It was fun. You know, it was cool because, you know, other kids were doing it. So it didn't really it, it didn't seem like work, if that makes any sense. Uh, and, you know, if you did a good job, if you put the paper right where the customer wanted it, like on their porch, so all they had to do was open their door and boom, there's the paper. Well, they tip you. So when you came around to collect the money, they would tip you. Right. They give you a quarter, 50 cents. Sometimes you get a dollar, which was, you know. In 1964, 1965, a dollar was a lot of money, right? You know, back then, just like um, a kid. Yeah, for a kid, right? Well, here and the other thing is, you'll you love this. I lived across the street from a golf course. Well, most golfers in America suck, <laughs> right? They're horrible. They're they're not good at the game, and so they would hit the balls over the fence. And so I take my bicycle and I'd ride the perimeter. I'd find those golf balls. I'd take them home. I'd clean them. I go back to the golf course where the pro shop is, and I go into the trash cans, and the boxes that the golf balls would come in, they threw away. Well, I take them, and then I take the golf balls that I found, and I set them in in those boxes, and then I'd go back into the into the parking lot, and I'd sell them back to the golfers. <laughs> right? It was free money. So right. my belief system, my belief system at a young age was: there's lots of money out there. Yeah, go I'm get it. it. Go find it. Go get it. That's true. Go get it. I have a, I have a question. So thinking sure. back to that day when your parents called you in and told you, do you wish that they never told you? No. Nope. Not at all. Um, you know, what's interesting about that, too, is that, uh, you know, they're telling me they're not my parents. And, and my mom goes, and you know, your you know, your aunt Dean. Yeah. Well, that's actually your mom. And I'm like. I don't even like her, <laughs> right? And and here's why: because it, it was just it was always, I don't know, it was always bizarre. It was always odd when she was around, because she was always touching me, and not inappropriately. Let me be crystal right. clear about something. Right. She would, but she'd want to hug me and kiss me and hold me and sit next to me. Well, duh, I'm her son, and she only got to see me once in a while, right? So you know, when I got older, I understood it. But it was just, you know, it was just bizarre. It was weird, right? Uh, she'd always want to come get me and take me places. And uh, she took me to the Pike. There's a There was a place called the Pike in Long Beach, California. It was a magnificent place. It had the largest roller coaster in the world. The largest wooden-built roller coaster. And that thing would beat you to death. But, man, was it fun. <laughs> so, anyway, she, you know, she would take me places. She took me up to Morro Bay in, Calif- in California. Uh, she had she had a, a friend up there that she worked at McDonnell Douglas with, and so you know she tried really hard to be my mom, um, and uh, so what was more, I don't know, you know what what was what I was trying to figure out is my dad, right, my mm. biological dad, um, because um, you know I never saw him ever, never met him, never saw a picture, nothing. Uh, when my I I left California in '83, moved to the East Coast, and um, eventually ended up buying a farm out in the Shenandoah Valley. When when my biological mother got, um, you know, in her final days, we brought her from California out to the farm to live her final days with us. And when she passed, I found a book, and the book was uh, a squadron um, of of about pilots. And I thought, oh my gosh. I'm going to see my dad, right? Because I, he was a pilot in Korea. And this was a squat, squadron of pilots in Korea. And I had his name. He was on my my certificate of live birth, right? Jonathan Eisler. And so I looked through that book. I didn't find him. And, I, and that's pretty typical for me. I'm not as good as finding stuff. So I gave it to my wife, Stacia. And she's really good at finding stuff. And she looked through that book. We must have looked through that book what felt like 100 times and we never found it. And so that was, you know, I, I just, and finally, I just had to settle in with it. I'm like, well, you know what? I, I, I have to be okay with this. I mean, I'm going to choose gratitude. That's my choice. 
Um, and I was I was at peace with the fact that I would never see even a picture of my dad. And you know what happened about that that was really interesting was years later, uh, here a couple of years ago, I'm here in Boone, North Carolina. I'm having dinner with my son and we're sitting there, we're hanging out and it's a seafood place. And, you know, we're enjoying our time. And and uh, I always like to um, treat the servers really, really well, you know, with love and kindness, and respect and just the total opposite of, unfortunately, sometimes the way they're treated. And we're sitting there and we're eating. All of a sudden I look down and I look up and I and I look down and I go, oh, my God. I'm having dinner with my dad's grandson and I can see my dad in my son. And it was just done. It was magical. And I think the only reason that that moment of clarity came to me was because I made peace with my dad and I forgave him, you know, and I, and I said, Hey, the man did the best he could. I don't know what kind of pain he was in. I don't know. Um, apparently he was in a lot of pain. So, you know, it's, that's where forgiveness and reconciliation, uh, I think is super, super important. So I wasn't going to carry around any anger. And so I just chose gratitude and, and it was a beautiful moment. Um, so as I progressed, you know, in life, um, things got worse, right? As far as my drug addiction and my alcoholism. And by the time, uh, on June 8th of 1988, when I woke up that morning, I said, that's it. I'm done. We are not doing this anymore. I'm out. I was in so much physical pain, Donna, and, and emotional pain and spiritual pain. I was just every, every muscle in my body hurt. Um, and so I said, well, that's it. I'm done. I'm, I'm checking out. And I really, the only, the only idea I had in that moment was to commit suicide. Well, the good news is, is that I was married to a woman with three kids and they were my stepkids. And as I'm getting ready to pull that trigger, I went, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, dude, you can't do that because you're going to be dead. And then those kids are, you're killing them at the same time. They're going to suffer. They're going to, you know, the cops are coming in, the morgue's coming. It's going to be in the newspaper. It's going to be all over town. I mean, what a, what a horrible thing to do to those kids. You can't do that. You've got to figure out another way. Well, the next the next thought I had was call Alcoholics Anonymous. But you know what's interesting about that is I didn't even know who in the heck AA was. I didn't know anybody in AA. I'd never been to AA. I had no references for Alcoholics Anonymous. Yet there was the divine thought in my head. And I did. I called AA and I got this wonderful human being on the phone. Uh, she saved my life. I've affectionately named her Madge over the years of talking about her because she talked like this. And, and Madge must have smoked two packs of non, Palm Oil non-filters a day. <laughs> and she was brutal, man. She was whipping my butt big time, right? But that's her job. She's the gatekeeper, right? It's her job to call. If she thinks you're bad enough, she'll call one of the guys in AA to come pick you up. And she did that. And she sent a guy by the name of Lauren. And Lauren came and picked me up and he got me to the meeting. He got me to a noon meeting, 1230 meeting, uh, not too far from where I lived. It was an all men's group. And he stayed with me all day. Perfect stranger. I was at four meetings that day, a 1230, a 430, a 630, and an 830. And so I was starting to experience the love, the unconditional love that comes out of Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, when I'm there, they gave me a big book. It's called the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And on the inside cover, all these men, they wrote in the book that said, before you take that first drink, call one of us. And they put their first name and their phone number. And they gave that to me and went to, when I went home that, that, that day. Well, the next morning at 8 o'clock in the morning, my phone rings. And it's John from Alcoholics Anonymous. And he's like, hey, Dave, good morning. How you, how you doing? And I'm going, how do you think I'm doing? Are you kidding me? I want to kill somebody. And I might start with you, pal. <laughs> He's like, he's a really cool guy, right? He's really funny. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear you. He goes, hey, man, listen, I know where you live. We talked last night. Um, here's what I want to do. I want to come pick you up. Let's go to breakfast, and I'll take you to another AA meeting today. A perfect stranger. I'm threatening him on the phone, and he comes and gets me. What the hell? Who does that? Right? And so I, I just started tapping in into the, into the love and the magic that goes on in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And so two days turned into a week, a week turned into a month. And, and when I got to a month, they gave me a chip and it said one month of continuous sobriety. And then 
Then I got one for two months, three months, six months, nine months, and then one year. And then I picked up a chip this year um, uh, uh, for 35 years of sobriety. Congratulations. Ah, so, uh, thank you. Um, you know, I, it's it's kind of hard for me to accept it sometimes because I'm like, look, all I did is stop trying to kill myself. That's, you know. Um, but it was a beautiful thing. And so what happened was is how, how I got into the personal development industry is that um, when I was getting sober, I had insomnia. So I was up at late at night all the time. My sleep patterns were all, all over the place. And so there I am at like three o'clock in the morning one night. And there he is, Mr. Motivation, a young Tony Robbins, man. There he is back in 1988 selling his personal power program, a 30-day program for total success, he called it. And you know what, Don? I couldn't stand him. He was pompous. He was all motivated and encouraging. And I'm not, right? But man, he said a couple things that got me. The first thing he said was, we'll do more to avoid pain than we will to gain pleasure. And I thought, oh, geez, that's why I use drugs and drink. I was either trying to, you know, gain some pleasure or avoid pain. That's really interesting. And then here's what got me. He said, the human beings make decisions based on one of two things, inspiration or desperation. <laughs> and I went, well, I'm pretty desperate. So maybe I should buy this guy's program. And I did. And they sent it to me and it came in a big box and it came on these little white things called cassette tapes. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think I right? know those. Right. Yeah. Those <laughs> and eight tracks and reel to reel. And right. Um, if you're listeners, you know, go to the Smithsonian, you'll see them in there. <laughs> uh, so anyway, I went through it. I did what the man told me to do and, and it worked. Well, um, one of my buddies in AA kind of noticed that I was making a lot of changes in my life, right? Not only am I working the steps and going to AA, but I stopped. Um, I, I, I was in a bad marriage. I had to get out of that marriage. I started working out. I started losing weight. I started my own business, um, you know, and I was getting a lot of encouragement and, and motivation from Tony. And it started to spill over into my life. Well, my buddy's like, what's wrong with you, man? What's going on with you? Why are you so motivated? <laughs> it's like, well, the deal is, man, I've been listening to this guy by the name of Tony Robbins. He goes, hey, oh, hey I know who Tony Robbins is. I, I bought his book, but I never read it. And I go, well, there you go. That's okay. <laughs> How often does that show up in your life? Right. right? <laughs> and so um, I said, hey, man, listen, I've got his program. I'll loan it to you if you got to promise me you'll go through it. He goes, I promise I'll do it. And so he did. He went through it. Well, seven years later, right? This is all happening in 1988, 1989. Well, now in 1995, Dan calls me on the phone. He said, hey, did you know that Tony Robbins is coming to town? And I said, no, I had no idea. He goes, dude, come on. You got me into this. We got to go. Let's go see him. Well, when is it? Okay, I can go. He goes, fantastic. He goes, look, man, I'll call you back. I'll, I'll make all the arrangements. So he calls me back like an hour hour later, right? And he goes, done. We pick up the tickets at Will Call. And here's what they told us to do. Number one, uh, bring snacks. Because we're going to spend a lot of time in the room. <laughs> what an understatement that is. Anybody been to a Tony Robbins seminar is laughing right now because they know, right? <laughs> uh, drink a lot of water. Hydrate. Drink a lot of water. Very important. Bring a good attitude and be ready to play full out. And I said, well, Dan, how much was the ticket? $695. Like $700? He goes, yeah, he goes, don't worry, you can pay me back. And I'm like, no, that's not the point. I mean, what's that worth today? $7.3 I mean, I don't know, you know, buy Bitcoin with it. So <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, don't worry, Dan. You know, spending 700 bucks. don't you worry, pal. I'll play full out. Well, just as he's getting ready to get off the phone, he goes, oh, wait, hold it, stop. I, I, I left out the most important part. I'm like, what? He goes, we're going to be doing a fire walk. And I'm like, oh, hell no. <laughs> no, 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 no. Not this guy. We're not doing no fire. By the way, this is all going on in my head. I'm not saying anything to Dan. I'm just like, oh, no, we're not doing any of that. And you know what's interesting, Donna? I didn't even know what a firewalk was. Never heard of it before. Well, I don't know what a firewalk is. But walking on fire and, right? I'm it didn't sound like anything. What, like. what is yeah, it? Yeah, right. Right. So fear's making all my decisions for me anyway. So that was a real easy one. Right. And I'm, but I don't want Dan to know that. Right. So I'm like, yeah, Dan, great. Firewalk. Sure. All right. I'll see you then. Boom. Nope. Ain't doing it. I want to see Tony. 
But, you know, we'll let the crazy people go do the fire walk and we'll watch. <laughs> so uh, the big day comes and we get to the event and Tony takes the stage at two o'clock in the afternoon. And the next thing I know, it's after midnight. Ten hours in a room with Tony Robbins. My God, are you kidding me? And so bring snacks, remember? Yeah, better bring snacks or you'll starve to death. So next thing I know, it's after midnight, and all of a sudden Tony goes, take your shoes off. And I'm like, oh, no. (laughs) I see where you're going with this, pal. Uh -uh, I ain't taking my shoes off. Well, the dilemma I've got is I'm in a seminar with 3,500 people. And guess what they're doing? They're taking their shoes off. Idiots. <laughs> right? You're falling for it. Don't do it, guys. Don't go towards the light, right? And so now I'm faced with the dilemma. What am I going to do? They're all taking their shoes off. And if I go outside into this big parking lot where they're going to logistically, you know, they set up this firewalk, people are going to go, hey, look at the guy over there. It didn't take his shoes off. Hey, he's a coward, you know? So I'm like, yeah, well, we can't have that. So I'm like, just chill out. Just take your shoes off, relax. And when you get out there, go hide in the back. You'll be fine. That's my strategy. Well, it gets worse, right? Because as he gets everybody to go out there, he gets everybody to start clapping and chanting. So now everybody's walking out there going, yes, 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 right? 3,500 people doing this. It gets worse. When you get out there, physically out there, he's got African drummers. So now it's yes, yes. And, and, exactly. I mean, it's a dog and pony show, Donna, unlike anything you've ever seen or experienced in your life, right? Well, when you get out there over in the corner of the parking lot, it's a big parking lot, they've got a giant fire building. And it's probably 30 feet wide, 70 feet long. And it's been burning all day. So they just keep adding hardwood to it. And at the end of the night, after midnight, it renders. And there's this big, giant, beautiful pile of blue coals. And it's gorgeous. I mean, it's a beautiful sight to see. Well, how they set this up is they take a whole bunch of wheelbarrows over there, and they fill those wheelbarrows full of coals. And then they bring a wheelbarrow, and they lay two lanes of sod, of grass, on each side of the wheelbarrow. And that's a fire lane. So it's, uh, you know, it's three feet wide, 15 to 18 feet long. And then what they do is they take a flathead shovel with from the coals from the wheelbarrow and they sprinkle them on top of the grass. That's what you walk on. Well, I'm having none of it. I'm in the back. I'm, you know, I'm 100 yards away, but it's going. You can hear it because now the drums are going. People are clapping. They're chanting. People are screaming because they're in the celebration and they're jumping up and down. They're celebrating. I mean, again, it's intense. Well, Tony Robbins knows that the Firewalk is probably one of the most life-changing, paradigm-shifting experiences on the planet. It's been around for a thousand years, and he knows it. And he also knows there's people like me, (laughs) right? The cowards are hiding in the back. Well, he knows that, right? So what's he do? He trains people to come find you. Oh, Oh, gosh. Really, Tony? Do we have to do that? And so I'm back there minding my own business. And all of a sudden, here comes this guy. (laughs) Sure enough. And he makes eye contact with me. And Tony must train him. Hey, when you make eye contact with these people, don't take your eyes off them. And so he's coming closer and closer and closer. And he gets about 20 feet from me, right? And he looks at me really funny, like there's something wrong with me, right? And he goes, hey, man, are, are you okay? And when we're not okay, what do we say? We lie. I'm okay. <laughs> I'm good. Yeah, all good here, man. Listen, hey, nothing to see here. Move along, right? <laughs> and all of a sudden, right? And he goes, hey, man, are you going to walk tonight? And I'm like, absolutely not. Like, didn't <laughs> you get the memo? Are you nuts? And and I said it with such a tonality. He was like, hey, man, it's cool. You know, no problem. He goes, hey, man, listen, we don't want you to do anything you don't want to do. And I went, wow, okay, I like that. I don't want to do this. He's got me. And then... Donna, one man, this stranger who I don't know to this day, without him, I'm not sitting on your podcast right now, right? Because the question he asked me was, well, wouldn't you at least like to watch? And I thought, sure. Yeah, let's go watch these people burn their feet off. That'll be fun. Let's do that. 
And he said, well, listen, man, you can't see anything from where you are. Nothing. He said, so just get in line. And eventually, you'll get up close enough where you can see it. Okay. He's telling the truth. He's congruent in what he's saying. So I get in line. And I'm just kind of walking along. And again, drums are going. People are clapping. They're chanting. They're screaming. They're yelling. They're celebrating. It's craziness, right? It's mayhem. Well, the next thing I know, this guy comes up to me. And he whispers in my ear. And he says, he knows when you're ready. When he says go, you go. And I'm like... And he just went pew, and he just disappeared into the night, right? I'm like, what was that? What was that about? Who is that? That's insane. Well, all of a sudden, I I can't see in front of me. Understand, I've got 3,000 people in front of me, right? Hundreds and hundreds of people. I can't see anything. But I get to a point where I can see at an angle down there. I can see them doing it. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. They're doing it. Every race, every creed, every color, all of them. And, and, and now I'm asphyxiated, right? I'm in a trance because I'm like watching something that my brain has never seen before. I have no references for. And it's pretty much unbelievable, right? Kind of like, you know, you drive by a car accident. You're not supposed to stare at it, but you stare at it. Right. Right. So that's what's kind of going on. And I'm looking and I'm watching and I'm walking and I'm walking. And all of a sudden, boom, guess where I am? Right up front. I'm, just, I'm, a, I'm at the front of the line. And oh my God, you know, you, I look down in that fire lane, three feet wide, 15, 18 feet long. You see the coals, they're bright red. It's not like you can't see them, right? And there's a wheelbarrow there. You can feel all the heat coming off. My heart is beating so fast, it's going to jump out of my chest. And I'm scared to death and I'm staring into the abyss, right? Well, there's a trainer standing right there. And all of a sudden he goes, eyes up. Oh, jeez, that's right. My eyes are up. Well, I'm in a room for, with Tony for 10 hours. Guess what he teaches you to do? Don't stare at what you fear. Keep your eyes up. Look to the celebration. Right? Look to the celebration end. So now I'm looking down there, and all of a sudden the trainer goes, squeeze your fist and say yes. And I went, yes. And he went, stronger. And I went, yes. Well, he could tell. He could tell I was leaving a lot on the table. I wasn't in a peak state, and he knew it. So what's he do? He screams at me. Stronger. <laughs> in the air and I screamed, yes! And he goes, go, go, go! Poo! I took off. Well, remember the guy? He knows when you're ready. When he says go, you go. I took off. So here's the first thing I learned about firewalking. When you take the first step, oh, you'll take the second, third, fourth, and fifth. I absolutely guarantee you. You are not going to stop, right? Well, Tony positions two people at the end. And they lock arms and they catch you. Right? And they're like, stop, wipe your feet and celebrate. And we're down there and I'm celebrating. People are screaming every, you know, because you he's got like, I don't know, probably 20 lanes, right? So you got 20 people walking at the same time celebrating. I mean, again, it's it's really intense. Well, all of a sudden it dawns on me that I've burnt myself really bad. And I'm like, oh, oh my gosh. And I look at my foot and it's dirty, but there's no burns. Oh, it's my other foot. Yeah, it's dirty too. But there's no burns. And in that moment, like all 3,500 of us, it's exhilarating. It, it, you know, you you believe that you can accomplish anything. I had just walked on coals that are a thousand degrees. I was successful at it, but I didn't know how I did it. Right? I, I didn't I didn't have a clue. Ever done that? Right? I think we've all done that at some point. You do something really cool, really awesome, and you're not even really sure how you pulled it how off. You did it, right? Right? But you take credit for it. It's like that's right. That's I, did it. <laughs> I did it. Right? Well, at that point you think you can accomplish anything. You are on such a high, it's unbelievable, right? It's like, hey, where's the bus? Let's go to Everest. You know, let's go <laughs> right? climb, let's go climb the highest mountain in the world. Well, um, but here's where it gets really, really interesting. The next day. So this was a four-day event, right? That was day one, the night of. Now we're on day two. So now we're all standing in the foyer getting ready to go into the venue. And so you're there with 3,500 people who were all on time that morning. By the way, it didn't look like there were any stragglers. I'm sure there were, but not, not like you would normally see, right? Everybody's like there. And I've never seen or witnessed anything like it in my life. People were getting along humanistically. 
uh, like nothing I'd ever seen or experienced. You know, they're, they're laughing and they're crying and they're hugging and they're embracing and they're connecting humanistically. It was just beautiful. It was gorgeous to watch. And I'm like, so what created all this? Did we drink the Kool-Aid last night? I mean, did the, did the firewalk experience create this? Well, turns out, yeah, absolutely it did. And that's why Tony does it on day one. He knows he's got leverage on you. Because if you can walk on coals at a thousand degrees, you're going to ask yourself, what else can I do? What else have I, what has fear taken from me? And so later on in the event, I met one of Tony's trainers, a guy by the name of Ted Macy. Sweet guy. I love this guy. And his wife, Mary. They were both trainers. And so I'm just talking to Ted, and I'm like, you know, we're talking, and I go, man, this must be really awesome that you get to come and be in this environment and be around all this positivity and encouragement. He goes, oh, yeah, man, I get to do this eight, ten times a year. And he goes, as a matter of fact, you see all those people over there standing over there with the black shirts and the pink writing on the back? I'm like, yeah. He goes, dude, they're volunteers. They're just like you. They came here, loved it, and want to come back. And he goes, so do this. When you get home, call Robin's Research. Ask them to send you a volunteer crew application. And so I did. Well, heck, Donna, nine weeks later, after I sent in the application, uh, I got a letter back in the mail. And it said, Dave Alvin, congratulations. You've been selected to crew with the Anthony Robbins Companies in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Well, color my ass happy. <laughs> there I was, right? My foot's in the door. Well, when you fill out the application... They kind of know where to put you, right? Because they look at your qualifications. And like they saw that I had a military background and I had a security background. So what they do? They said, put him on the security detail to help take care of Tony's celebrities, which I could do a whole podcast on just by itself. Uh, great experience. And then because I lived on a farm, I knew how to use tools. I knew how to drive a tractor. I knew how to use a log splitter. So guess where they put me? Outside on the fire building team, which is exactly what I wanted. So there I was. I had manifested it. I'm on the team. And so I crewed five or six times. And then they actually offered me a subcontracting position, right? When you volunteer, you got to pay your way. You got to pay your hotel. You got to pay airfare, your food, all your travel expenses. You know, that's a couple grand every time you do one. And my wife wasn't too happy about it at the time. She's like, because I'm spending 2000 bucks every time I go to a Tony Robbins seminar. And she doesn't know anything about Tony, right? She's right. never been to an event. She's like, you know, who the hell is this Tony Robbins guy? $2,000, you know? I could be getting something else with that money, right? Well, when they made me a subcontractor, I got a free ticket. And so I took her. And she went. And after she graduated, we were walking on the beach. And she looked at me and she goes, David, I get it. Whatever you want to do. You want to roll with this guy, roll. This, this, there's some really positive things going on with this environment. So you, you do whatever you want to do, as long as they pay your way. <laughs> right? And that and was going to be my, my next What's question. I, was, I wanted to know, were there women doing the fire walk too? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, and the women are much better at it. Men are a bunch of egotistical idiots. <laughs> oh, and the, and the women bring grace and elegance to the fire, and that's exactly what the fire wants. Literally. Um, sometimes the women are a little bit more fearful, so I have to take them through a process of breathing, and I have them you know, do diaphragmic breathing. A lot of time, I'll hold their hand. Um, but you know, the, the, when you're when you're standing there and you're looking down, and those coals are bright red, your brain is going, "Don't do that!" <laughs> right? So it's fight or flight. Um, but yeah, uh, the ones that uh, uh, learn the quickest lessons are the men. Because they can, they I've seen them. They'll run out to the firewalk and start yelling at it and screaming at it. <laughs> like, I own you, man. And you know, I'm going, oh, dude, I wouldn't do that if I were you. And, right. You know, they'll take like one or two steps and go, ah, and they jump off the lane. Well, I wouldn't bring that kind of energy to the fire if I were you. And you know, when I do my firewalks now, I train everybody, man. Just calm down, just relax. You know what? A, you know what the fire wants? The fire's just like a woman. And when does a woman want your attention? Men, all, all the, the time. time. <laughs> and so does the fire. So just just relax, trust, go out there, get yourself in a good state, at a peak state. You know, I show them a couple of different ways how to do it. And uh, matter of fact, if you want to see uh, you want to see a really good example, uh, go Google Oprah's firewalk, and Oprah? you'll see a, Oprah. Yeah. She firewalked in 2010 in LA Coliseum at the LA Convention Center. Oh, wow. So 
the great thing is that it really depicts what somebody goes through. Because she, excuse my French, but she's losing her shit prior to the firewalk. She does not want to do it. She's with um, Sherry, right, who was in charge of Harpo at the time. And they're conversing back and forth. Do it. Don't do it. Yo, we're going to get hurt. No, we're not. Back and forth. It's beautiful to watch. But what's interesting is when Oprah walks, you got to see her celebrate. She celebrates like a little kid, just like a lot of other people do. We all we all kind of do it, right? Because it's a celebration. In. in fact, the cameras follow her and she goes over. And she makes one of the biggest business decisions of her life. Within seconds of firewalking, she developed what she now calls, or what she was calling back then, the next chapter. And so it's beautiful. And that's pretty, that's, you know, that's pretty typical. That's what happens. Um, so the bottom line was, um, as I got into it, um, in 2003, uh, Tony uh, offered me the captain's position, which meant that I would take over all of Tony's firewalks globally. Um, and I homeschooled my kids, so they even paid to have my kids go on the road. In fact, our first firewalk with my family on the road was in this horrible place called Sydney, Australia. Um, of course, I'm joking. It's one of my favorite places on earth. <laughs> right. right. I'm being very facetious. So my kids and my family are on the road with Tony Robbins. Uh, a couple years later, in 2005, we went to London. Uh, we set a world record. Tony and I did. Uh, we firewalked uh, 12,300 people. Now, I say it's a world record. I do want a full disclosure. The Guinness Book of World Record was not there. However, there's never been a firewalk of 12,300 people anywhere in the world. Wow. The, the only thing that would come close to that is another Tony Robbins seminar, right? So uh, that happened. And then, and then, Donna, in 2014, my life took another big turn. I'm driving down the road. My phone rings in. It's a company called Google. And they're like, uh, hey, are you the Dave Albert that does the firewalk for Tony Robbins? Yeah. What can I do for you? Well, we'd like to hire you. So, you know, we're hoping that you're not under any contractual obligation or non-compete. And I'm like, well, you're right. I'm not. Homeboy's a free agent. What you got going on? Well, you know, we have this date. We have 140 executives. They're going to graduate. We want to anchor the experience in. Well, Google knows. They know. <laughs> they know why they wanted this experience for 148 of their executives. If anybody knows, Google knows. And I said, well, look, guys, here's the challenge. I can't do a firewalk in the middle of the day. I can't see the coals. I need to be able to see the color. It's a safety issue. I can't do it. Tell you what we could do if you want to do it in a day. We could do a glass walk. They're like, a glass walk? I go, yeah, I'll teach them how to walk on broken glass. They're, go, they're like, ooh, tell us about that. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, they went for it. And so my first gig was, we did, I did ended up doing two uh, Glasswalk kids gigs for Google. And, and then the next thing I know, Donna, I'm at NASA. I'm at Notre Dame, Virginia Tech, Remax, Chick-fil-A, Heineken, wow. you know, the YMCA. I'm doing high schools. I'm doing junior high schools. I mean, every end of the spectrum, the EO organization. I mean, and it's been a beautiful thing. And, you know, so Firewalk Productions was born in 2014, and no pun intended, but uh, we've been going hot and heavy ever since. <laughs> so, Dave, if you had to pretty much say exactly the purpose of the Firewalk, I'm thinking it's like to face your fears. What would you say? Absolutely. Okay. It changes your whole perspective, right? Because up until that point, here's what fear was doing to me. It took everything away from me, Donna. It deprived me of all kinds of things. So it was forget everything and run, right? Or, you know, there's other words you can use too. Uh, family show, we'll keep it to forget everything and, and, and run, right? So what, what, what the shift does is it changes to face everything and rise. Interesting distinction. So my whole life changed right there on the spot. And that's what the Firewalk does. Firewalking has been around for a thousand years, Donna. It's all over. The Fahitians... The people of India, oh my gosh, they use it, you know, it's a rite of passage, it's ceremonial, it's graduations, it's it's it's, it's weddings, it's uh, birth of children, it's manhood, womanhood, uh, you know, the Polynesians, the Hawaiians, the Indo-Europeans, the Native American Indians, they've been using, they don't use it as a, you know, motivational thing like Tony Robbins does, right? They use it because it's survival. So it's a beautiful thing, <clears throat> um, you know, once you kind of, break that open and you look at all the reasoning 
behind the firewalk. It's literally one of the most life-changing experiences any human will go through, by far. It just is. Um, you know, it's not like jumping out of a plane. It's not like bungee jumping. You know, it's not like going golfing or, or taking a, you know, uh, whatever, you know, playing Jeopardy. Corporate team building, in fact, you know, it's a really interesting, Donna. I had a conversation with a couple of the uh, Google executives. And one of the girls, she goes, look, man, because let me tell you something. There's a huge marketplace out there for you in the corporate world for corporate gigs like you did here for us. She said, this is a life-changing experience, right, type of thing. This, wow. this creates a paradigm shift. And that's exactly what corporate America wants. And because, you know, you're just not going to put people in a in a theater or an auditorium and put somebody on stage and talk their life, you know, into a new way. That's not how you become a Navy SEAL. How do you become a Navy SEAL? They put you in the water off the coast of San Onofre and you swim with sharks, right? Because what doesn't challenge you doesn't change you. It's not going to happen, right? And every any conditioned athlete knows that. Every Olympian knows that. Every, you know, rock star, you know, they know. They put in their 10,000 hours. They, there's a zone. You have to get into that zone. And that zone is what creates greatness. Because we know, you know, you, you want to live an extraordinary life? Well, good. It's right over there. Right over there on the other side of, of your fear. And so, step up. And, and it works. And that's why companies hire me today. They basically hire me for one of three reasons. Number one, the company's in a complete meltdown. They're fighting about masks and, and vaccines. And I love Donald Trump. I hate Donald Trump. I, I mean, shut up. Stop. <laughs> the company right. doesn't care. Money doesn't care about any of that. What it cares about is two human beings working together and whether they're getting along or not. Because if they're fighting, their production goes boop. Right. And, and so how do you fix it, Mr. or Mrs. CEO? That's their job. And if they don't fix it, guess what's going to happen? Their bottom line is going to drop like a rock. Mm. And then the shareholders are going to go get rid of that CEO. Right? So the other time they hire me is when things are mediocre. You know, they're like in the middle. They're not really good. They're not really bad. If somewhere, you know, they're in mediocrity and they got to get out. Or the one I really love is when they're on, they're kicking on all eight cylinders, man. This company is kicking butt, but they want to take it to the next level. That's a lot of fun. Uh, they're all good. They're all great. They all work. Uh, but I love it when a company's kicking butt and they hire me to come in, right? Because they they hire me to come in and do it all. The other thing that I've done that takes the firewalk to the next level, Donna, is the uh, board break, right? So it's a martial arts move, right? If you, any Anybody that's been to a dojo, been to any martial arts, they know that within their system, the belt system, when you graduate, you break boards. Right. So to get your yellow belt, you break a board, get your purple belt. You may break it with your foot or your elbow, whatever. So you're breaking boards. Well, I took that experience and added it to the firewalk. Mm. And so here's what we do. I have them write anything on front of the board they want to move towards. I have them write anything on the back of the board that they need to move away from. And then I have them write anybody's name on the board that they're in conflict with. Mm. So, right. So if, 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 if forgiveness or reconciliation as part of that relationship, it ends tonight. Stop carrying around resentments. It's idiotic. It doesn't serve you. In fact, it will it will influence your greatness. Stop doing it. It ends tonight. And then to create the rite of passage that I spoke about, ancestrally, if you will, and through your generational side, I have them write anybody's name on the board that they've lost. And that creates a beautiful thing. So we take them outside. We take them through the, you know, we show them how to do it. They break the board and then they firewalk and then they go and they add the board to the fire. And then we capture that on video and we, you know, we take pictures of it. So then that way they have, um, you know, that those pictures and that to um, refer to. The other thing we do is we create these. Da da da. I don't know if you can see it or not, right? But they're the calls. They're the calls from the firewalk, right? So people love these. Um, so we, we, you know, this is an option. When a client hires me, I go, you think your people would like a container of the calls? They go, what? Yeah, container of the calls. So they can set it on their desk and they can look at it every day. And they go, oh yeah, we want that. <laughs> so, uh, and then I've got necklaces. And, and one of my sponsors is a really cool company. I love these guys. One of my favorite companies in America is called the Zippo Lighter Company, right? 
Yes. So you gotta you gotta light the fire with something, right? Right. So why not use a Zippo? And so they put our logo on it, and uh, they're really great. They're awesome. As a matter of fact, next week I go to Boston to MIT, and I do another fire walk there. We've already done uh, one here last year, and they invited me back. And uh, so after we do that, I get to go. I'm really super excited. I'm going to drive from Boston, MIT, to Bradford, Pennsylvania, and that's where Zippo is. And so uh, I get to go for a tour, and I get to go meet all the people, and I get to go meet the CEO, Mark Paul. And so, yeah, I'm super, super excited about that. That's, do you ever come anywhere near New Orleans? You got me as scary as I am. I think I want to try it. <laughs> um, you know, that's interesting. I've never been. I've never done an event anywhere In near New Orleans. Isn't that interesting? I'm here. There she is. So, um, yeah. Um, no, we haven't. But, uh, you know, I get hired by celebrities and professional athletes and stuff all the time. And they come to my house. They come up here to the Appalachian Mountains. I've got a master bedroom, master suite part side of my house. And so, it's an, you know, I've used it for Airbnb before. So they stay in the master bedroom and the master bath. They stay with me for a couple of days, and uh, I take them through these life-changing experiences. And and so, um, yeah. So that's it's you know it's private. Um, otherwise, you you know Tony's uh, in November. He's going to be in uh, Dallas, uh, UPW. I think it's the first. Yeah, it's the first week in uh, November. Okay, that's kind of close because I I, I want to like. I don't even get on roller coasters. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what's interesting, Donna, is I uh, I also have something that um, uh, uh, we started last year, and it's the um, uh, the Dave Alvin Firewalk Academy. And what that is is people come and they spend a week with me, and I teach them all this stuff. Right. So I have I have corporations who send somebody from their HR department and I come and I teach them. I teach them the firewalk, the board break, the brick break, the arrow break, the rebar bend, the glass walk, all that stuff. The storytelling, how to, you know, how to join a chamber, how to start your own business, um, how to approach people, how to get the fire permits. I teach it all to them. It's a week long course coming in October, this October, which this one's already sold out. Um, so the next one won't be until October 2024. And then I, you know, and so I get, I get entrepreneurs, we get business owners, we get coaches, we get trainers, we get a whole variety of people that actually come to the academy and spend a week with me. So, um, again, we're sold out for this year, but maybe next year, come on, I'll show you how to do it. And you can go do your own firewalks for all the fine folks down in New Orleans. I bet that should be fun. Firewalks and booze. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All yeah, right. so it's really cool. Uh, the academy is really cool. We keep it small. We keep it intimate. Uh, like right now, I only, I only, uh, I cut it off at nine people. There's a reason for that, and I ta- I teach it at the academy. But uh, yeah, um, it's 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 a really awesome experience. Okay, so I did have a question. I wanted to go back when you were talking about your dad, yeah. and people will always say you can't miss something that you never really had so do you believe that to be true did you do you think you ever missed your dad your biological dad um well i think about him a lot you know every father's day uh holidays you know would i like to have seen what he looked like sure would i've liked to have had a conversation with him and met him sure um but it's not going to happen so i'm okay with that again i made peace with it you have to accept and- it right that, and so I accepted what, what happened. And again, he did the best he could with what he had to work with. And so I'm okay with that. Because I don't want to take that around with me. What if I, was a, what if I wanted to act all stupid and get angry and create a big story? And blah, blah, blah. No. Because you know what you do? You end up taking that out on your kids. You end up taking that out on other people. No, I ain't doing that. No. I'm going to go with, with, with the peacefulness of gratitude. And that, you know, I love my dad. And I'm sure he loved me. Um, and unfortunately, you know, I can't imagine what that moment would have been like to take his life knowing that he's got a son coming. 
That had to be excruciatingly hard. He must have been in a lot of pain. Now, by the way, I don't, I'm not 100% sure he took his life, but he t- that's what he told my mom. You know, he didn't know how much longer he could stand the pain. And all of a sudden he'd say, you know, I'm going to the grocery store and she never saw or heard from him again. You know, it's certainly possible that that's what happened. But again, I don't know that either. So I'll just, I'll just go through life and be okay with that. You know, the one thing I did with my parents that raised me um, is that um, I went to my mom's grave when I had five, when I was five years sober and I took my five-year chip and I put it at her headstone. And, um, and then I did the same thing with my dad that raised me, Bob Alvin. He's buried in Riverside. It's called Arlington West. So you have Arlington Cemetery, Cemetery up, see, up in D.C., right? Um, and then, you know, it's, it, it, they can't bury anybody else there now. And so they, they created this big cemetery, Arlington West, for military in Riverside, California. So my dad's buried there, Bob Alvin. And I, I refer to him as my dad. And I took my 10-year chip. And I went there and made peace with my dad there and put my tenure chip at his at his gravesite as well. Um, and, you know, a lot of that comes from Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, forgiveness is a big part of AA. Um, and so, uh, you know, you got to practice those principles in all your affairs. Right. And um, I, I wouldn't have lived the lifestyle that I do and uh, had the family that I have had I had I not done some of those things. All right. So, yeah. I see you say that you can change someone's life in four seconds. Yep. How was that? Walk across those coals. So it takes four about, seconds. That, take, that's, that's all it takes. 1,001, <laughs> 1,002, 1,003, 1,004. Done. Absolutely. <laughs> Is this on YouTube? I want to go check it out. There's some videos. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Go. So go to my website. Yeah. Go to my website. There's lots of stuff there you can watch. Okay. Uh, it's, um, firewalkadventures.com adventures is spelled with an s right firewalkadventures all one word dot uh, com there's a bunch of stuff there um firewalking and people doing it and my career and the academy and um you know lots of the companies that have done business with us and um that's yeah, pretty thorough there's a, there's a lot of information there so if somebody wants to get a hold of us it's there it's real easy that's to what get, they can, you know. okay and yeah. I also saw that your children did it at six yes. and nine. Yes, they did. We were in New York City. Uh, we were at a Tony Robbins event. Um, and I felt this was time. And so um, I had one of Tony's trainers spend about an hour with him. And then we walked all the participants and they were standing over in the shadows. And Tony knew that they were going to walk. And, uh, and, and after, you know, we walked all the participants, Tony waved them over. And, you know, here they come. Here goes my six-year-old daughter. And um, and she walked up, and Tony took her by the hand. And I took her by the other hand. And um, we walked her across the fire at six years old. Wow. Um, uh, My son, Davey Jr., um, you know, he stepped up. And Tony said, "Um, I love you, and I love your daddy. Go. And so, and so my son walked. And and if you were to see them today, Donna, you would know how profound that experience was. And that's the beauty. And that's why I like to do a lot of work with kids and veterans and first responders who are suffering from PTSD and, you know, where suicide is really, really high. Um, you know, you give me a nine-year-old kid, an eight-year-old kid, a six-year-old kid, and you let me show them how to break a board with their bare hands. And then you let me fire walk them. I got news for you. That child's life will never, ever, ever be the same. Um, and so that's my sweet spot. I love working with kids. And that's why, you know, the YMCA hired me, you know. Um, and then, you know, veterans. You know, we the, the number that's floating around in a, out there is 22 a day are committing suicide. That's wow. not true. It's not true. That number's not correct. That's only ones that leave a note. Wow. It's, almost, it's like 40. So one of the things that we're putting together right now with corporate sponsors, in fact, I'm going to be talking to Zippo when, uh, next week when I get there, is about the do no harm firewalk. So, you know, a lot of veterans commit suicide because they, they haven't found their purpose or they lost their purpose, right? And because when they come back to the United States, they all get separated. And so you've got to reconnect that. You have to get them back 
and they have to have something to live for. And so purpose. So I, I, I had an epiphany one night and said, create the do no harm firewalk. And then, so what we'll do with that, same thing as I said before, we'll do the board break. But for them to go out there and do this, they're going to have to raise their hand and take an oath to do no harm. And and then we'll create, you know, um, a, a, an activity with that. And then we'll have things, you know, they'll get they'll get a lighter, they'll get a necklace, they'll, they'll get their container of the coals, and we'll create a, a community around the Firewalk experience. And then the other thing I'm going to have them do is, again, you took an oath. So what we're going to do is we're going to, um, I want you to go recruit, go find your fellow veterans, go talk to them, call, call at least two of your veteran friends at least once a week, at least two minimum. And you have to promise you'll do that. Take an oath. You served the military. Now you're going to serve the community. Um, and so, you know, bring them in. Let's get, let's get them across the fire. And you know what, Donna, the bottom line is that if we can save one. That's terrific. But I think I think we can do a whole lot better than that. Right. Okay. So as we get to the end of the podcast, I'd like to ask my favorite question. So okay. my question is, if you were able to talk to 17-year-old Dave and tell him something about life, give him some advice, what would you tell him? This too shall pass. Uh, you know, things going bad. Everything's horrible. Everything's caving in on you. It's a real shit storm going on in your life. This too shall pass. Everything going great. Everything's wonderful. Right? Kicking on all eight cylinders. This too shall pass. <laughs> right. Um, and I think one of the most important things is state management. Everything that happens in our lives, you, me, everybody, whether it's good or bad, we create a story about that incident. So Viktor Frankl left us a really great clue about how to deal with that, right? He wrote the book, Man's Search for Meaning. Viktor Frankl was in Auschwitz. They assassinated his family. He had to stand outside with these other men and women in the cold, naked. They wouldn't feed them. They beat them. They tortured them. Every single day, they didn't know whether they were going to go to the chambers and die. But And so they can take everything from you, except here's what Viktor Frankl figured out. There's something they can't take from you. You have, to, you have to relinquish it. You have to give it up. And what is that? Your attitude. So he decided that they weren't going to take his attitude. And he decided that someone needs to tell this story. Back to what we're talking earlier. Purpose. Right, a divine, a divine purpose. He said, "Somebody's got to tell this story, and I'm going to live to tell about it." And he did. And so, here's what I've learned: Want to change your life? Change your story. Um, and and again, I believe that the two most important times in someone's life is the moment they're born and the moment they figure out why. And I'll share one other thing that one of my one of my mentors shared with me many years ago, and it's been a wonderful help to me to to live my life. And that is, he said, every human being on this planet has two lives. And the second one starts when you realize you have only one. Wow, I like that. Okay. All right. So, thank you so much, Dave. That was a a great conversation. I mean, I just let you talk because that that was... amazing i didn't even have to ask any questions because that story (laughs) that was big and i really appreciate that because i mean i was sitting here taking all my little notes i was like okay this is interesting so you have definitely helped me and i know you have helped some of the listeners and some of the viewers because that was a a excellent story and i am i am complete stranger but i'm i am so proud of you because the story that you told that is like wow that's amazing because you know a lot of times we have hard upbringings, difficult upbringings, and then we let it get to us, and you didn't. Nope. I, I made a choice. Nope. I'm going to create a good story. Um, and again, it, you know, in life, if you choose gratitude, see, when you're grateful, there's nothing else that can take place of that. In other words, there's not two two different meanings that can come into your head at the same time. Right. Because, you know, fear does not exist where gratitude is present. 
Mm. And so, like my buddy used to say, if you're not grateful today, what day are you waiting for? <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And you know what? I want to thank you because without incredible hosts like you who are willing to go out there and, you know, I don't think people realize that how difficult it is to be a host. There's a, there's a lot of work in it. Um, you know, all the recordings and the, and the editing and your time and, and, you know, and it's not easy. It's just not. And, and people think, oh, you just get up there and interview some people. No, it's hard. It's super, super hard. So, you know, thank you for, you know, bringing in guests who, um, um, you know, between the both of you, uh, because, you know, at the end of the day, like you said, you got to ask the questions and set it up and do it all. So, you know, kudos to you for doing an outstanding job with your Urban Mommy podcast. So, th again, thanks for having me on. It means a lot. Thanks, Dave. Thank you. And thank you all for the viewers and for the listeners for sticking with us. I hope you all are as inspired as I am. And I think we are all going to be waiting for October 2024 so we can do this walk. <laughs> all right. So thanks again, Dave. Thank you all yeah. for staying here. And if the Lord says the same, I will see you all next week. Thank you.